0: Talk to your local agent today.
1: Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
2: You know, I've had discussions with people that range from this should never, ever be done, and in fact, we should try to throw away the CRISPR technology all the way to we should be editing human embryos yesterday.
3: Hello and welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. We've got a great show, but before we have the great show, I have somebody very special here. I have a special guest. Who is it? Oh, wait. Is it me? <laughs> That's it's so you. That's so exciting. You have something exciting coming out today. Today is a big day. Yes.
4: For Ezra Klein Show listeners who don't know me, my name is Sarah Cliff. Um, I host The Weeds with Ezra, and I have a new podcast. It is called The Impact. It is Vox's very first narrative podcast where we go out into the real world and look at how policy affects people. I've been dying to make this show for the past year and I'm so excited it now exists.
3: So I'm not gonna pretend to be unbiased here. I've been involved in the creation of of this, talking with Sarah and, and I've seen scripts. I've seen what they're doing. This show is awesome. It is beautiful storytelling. It is really important stories. It is a show that should exist, and now it does. I'm really, really excited about what you and the team have done. Um, and everybody listening to this right now, they should stop what they are doing and go on their podcast app and subscribe to Vox's The Impact.
4: Yes, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, Overcast, basically wherever you get podcasts. The first episode is about a $629 band aid. And that's an
3: expensive fucking band aid. It is an
4: expensive. I, for the episode, I went to CVS to see how much band aids cost. It turns out usually they're more in the 20 cent range. So, this is a story about this um, reader who reached out to me because he took his daughter to the emergency room. They put a band aid on her finger. And a few months later, he got a bill for $629. This first season focuses on healthcare. And I think a lot of times we look at our healthcare system as this bizarre Rube Goldberg thing where nothing makes sense, where all these weird things just happen. And the point I want to make in this series is that these are not unexpected. These are all the result of very specific policy decisions that we've made over decades. And that episode in particular, we look at the decision not to regulate healthcare prices. That's how you end up with $629 Band-Aids. This
3: is a great show. It's a great episode. Again, go right now and subscribe to Vox's The Impact. You will love it. If you like this show, there is no way you will not like The Impact. And you guys have done an amazing job on this. I'm, I'm really excited about it.
4: Oh, thank you, Ezra. I am very excited. I hope you all enjoy it.
3: Speaking of which, Uh, Some of you who listen to the show have heard me talk a bit and in an uninformed way about CRISPR before. CRISPR is a gene editing technology. It's really only come about uh, and and matured, if matured is even the right word, in the last decade or so. Uh, What it can do is almost beyond belief. It can search out particular points in the genome, cut into them, and make very precise edits to the genome of anything. At this point, there is no genome that we know of, at least in my, from what I can tell, that CRISPR cannot edit. It can edit an apple, a human being, a deer. It can potentially be used in a very precise way to change an elephant into a woolly mammoth. You could create unicorns. You can make human beings taller or more muscular. Um, you can cure diseases. You can make uh, agriculture more resistant to all kinds of different things. We, we are living through a period Where it is at least possible that human beings have found the technology that will let them take over precise control of not just their evolution, but the evolution of anything that they choose to direct on Earth. That's fucking wild. (laughs) I mean, it is so wild that, that you wonder, I wonder, on these days when I'm sitting here covering tax reform or Obamacare, or a string of early morning tweets from Donald Trump, whether historians are going to remember any of this, whether when we look back, for better or maybe for worse, because there are really dystopic outcomes to this kind of technology, whether this is going to be remembered not as the era of Donald Trump or right-wing populism or, or any of the other things that we tend to talk about in the media, but this is the era of gene editing. This is the era when human beings found the technology that changed us into whatever we're we're going to become next. Um, I know people talk all about AI, but in many ways, I think CRISPR is possibly more decisive to, to human futures and AI. And who knows what happens when you put them together, when you put gene editing and AI together. Uh, you have all know Harari, who was on this show before, um, uh, the author of Sapiens and Homo Deus, and who talked about the idea that, that human beings are going to become a sort of machine-merged entity. Well, when you when you add in that we can control our genome, potentially, uh, that, that becomes <laughs> an even crazier future. I know what I am saying sounds like sci-fi. I know that it all sounds a bit crazy. Um, and and of course, and you'll hear in this conversation, there there are roadblocks between here and there. There, there are th- things we need to figure out. But on 50, hundred year timetable, which is not that long in human history, if we figure them out and we seem to be at least a ways along the road to doing so, this might be absolutely one of the most consequential errors that we've ever had. Uh, Today on the show, I have Jennifer Doudna. Jennifer Doudna is a professor of chemistry and molecular and cellular biology at UC Berkeley. She's a director of the Innovative Genomics Institute, and she is one of the researchers who has led the discovery and development and understanding of CRISPR. Uh, She's gotten all kinds of awards. She's on the Time 100 Most Influential People, was a part of a CRISPR group who was a runner-up for Person of the Year, In 2016 for Time. She's also the author of a new book on the development of CRISPR and her experience in it called A Crack in Creation, which is really a fantastic book, particularly if you do not know all that much about science, which I do not. Uh, I sort of need all science explained to me like I'm a particularly bright fifth grader. This is a really well-written, really easy to read and and really clear book on, on how this discovery happened and what it means and how it can work and what it might lead to. This is a conversation pretty broad about CRISPR, um, about how it works, but much more about its implications, about what it might be used to do, about what others might use it to do, about how do you regulate it, about what would happen if another country began using it in an unregulated way or as a weapon, about the fact that you can create gene drives or you begin to eliminate genes out of an entire animal population. We'll, you'll hear us talk about this, but there's a genuine argument over, over whether we should use CRISPR to eliminate mosquitoes entirely because they they cause tremendous human suffering. You can use CRISPR to forever change the human genome by not treating individuals, but by treating the human gene line. It's wild. It's mind-bending. Um, and Jennifer Doudna is the right person to explain it. So, as always, a couple quick requests. Check out our other podcasts, Worldly and The Weeds, and I think you're interesting. And please continue to email me your guest requests, your feedback on the show. I am, as always, Ezra Klein Show at Vox.com. Again, Ezra Klein Show at Vox.com. But without much more ado here, there's been plenty of ado. Uh, I began talking with Jennifer, particularly about where this might realistically lead, not in 100 years, where some of the real sci fi usage comes in, but in 30 years.
2: 30 years. Uh, <laughs> it seems like a, an infinite time span. I, I can't even guess where we'll be five years from now, honestly. But um but i think you know if you really look into you know two or three decades into the future i think it's not unrealistic to think that at that point we will be editing human dna probably um at the level of embryos and and certainly in in uh, patients that have genetic disease I think we will see big changes in agriculture and the kinds of uh, plants that can be engineered rapidly and precisely using gene editing technologies. And I also think that there's a, a just huge changes coming in biotechnology, you know, sort of the areas of synthetic biology, meaning uh, the abilities to generate particular chemicals using biological systems to do it. So I think all of those areas are going to be impacted uh, very dramatically using gene editing.
3: I I want to go a little bit specific there. So when you say 30 years from now, we'll be editing human DNA, we'll be editing human embryos. What will we be capable of doing safely? What kinds of things will, will we be able to achieve that we can't achieve now?
2: I suspect by that point in time, the technologies for gene editing will be refined to a point where They can be delivered safely into tissues. Uh, They can be employed to correct everything from a single letter change in DNA of a cell that causes a disease like sickle cell anemia or Duchenne muscular dystrophy all the way to uh, things that require inserting new genetic information into cells efficiently.
3: So that's a vision where we have Wiped out, I guess. Assuming you can get the cost to a point where it's non-prohibitive, we've wiped out disease like Huntington's and and muscular dystrophy. Uh, a, a vision where, I mean, that's a huge advance in in health. We're talking about.
2: You know, I think you're right. I, you know, one of one of the things that I think about a lot right now is is that is the the change that's coming in the way we even think about therapeutics, because I think with gene editing, it's an opportunity to treat or even cure disease at the genetic level that will obviate the need for people to take uh, chronic medications over the course of a lifetime. And so it really, you know, and you touched on this in, in your, what you just said, that, you know, it, it does raise the question of how to pay for such a thing and, you know, how to ensure that people get access to it. But I do think that it offers an, a really amazing and kind of unique opportunity in, in, in certainly human history to have the ability to control our genes at a level that allows the kind of precision needed to to correct disease or even remove disease traits from the whole human you know whole human populations
3: so walk me through a little bit of of how this works. I don't want to spend the whole interview here because this stuff is uh, complicated <laughs> but but you do write in the book that the genome uh, an organism's entire DNA content, including all of its genes, has become almost as editable as a simple piece of text so so for a layman um which I very much am when it comes to these issues, how does CRISPR make it possible to edit a human genome as if it is text?
2: I think yeah it's not it's a it's a an analogy that I think works pretty well. You can think about the the instruction set of a cell encoded chemically in the form of DNA molecules. And the DNA contains chemical letters that encode all of the proteins and other molecules necessary to allow cells to grow and divide, become a tissue or or a whole organism— And what gene editing does, and the CRISPR tool in particular, it allows detection of a very precise sequence of letters in DNA and alteration of those letters, so precise that, in principle, one can change a single letter in the more than 6 billion letters uh, or 3 billion base pairs of the human uh, genome. So it's a very interesting way that... We now have as as scientists to alter the genetic code, not randomly and not uh, hoping for an outcome, but being able to very precisely make a change that has a predicted effect on a cell or an entire tissue or organism. So it's a, it's a really profound opportunity.
3: And this isn't something that we created. It's something we found in nature.
2: This is the amazing thing, and this is a technology that came about through a curiosity-driven research effort to understand something seemingly totally unrelated to gene editing, namely how bacteria fight viral infection. And by understanding that process and the enzymes and mechanisms that allow that kind of adaptive defense to viruses in bacteria, it was possible to harness that system for a very different purpose, namely gene editing.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this
1: podcast comes from constant contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need constant contact. Just go to constantcontact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com.
3: You were part of the, the group that early beyond began uh, studying CRISPR. What were the first inklings that this? could be used for the the array of things we're talking about now, from from curing disease, for changing agriculture, creating um, human beings who are taller or stronger or different in some fundamental way, recreating the woolly mammoth. I mean, th- there had to be some period where the enormity of what was at least potentially possible here began to dawn. And, and I'm curious what that felt like. Was there a sort of eureka moment? Was it just a, a slow realization? What, what, what was that... Path like and how did it feel?
2: Well, it's been an incredible experience uh, scientifically and socially to be to be part of this. I, I would say for myself that um, you know we started working on CRISPR systems. These are the, these adaptive immune systems uh, that that uh, the CRISPR technology comes from back in you know about two thousand six or so, and um, it was clear fairly quickly that there were some very interesting components to these pathways in bacteria that allowed detection of, of virus uh, sequences, for example, virus RNA and DNA. So, you know, from those early days, I I, I you know, had start, started thinking about how some of the components of CRISPR systems could be used, and I was thinking at that time of, about using them as research tools or diagnostics. You know, ways to detect viruses in cells or or in uh, in clinical samples. And then when our research turned to the protein Cas9, which was part of a, a terrific international collaboration with the lab of Emmanuel Charpentier and her students. We started to get insight into how this enzyme, this protein, Cas9, could function as a programmable protein to find and cut DNA. And once we understood that mechanism, the sort of the biochemical basis for the the action of that protein, it was kind of an amazing connection that could be then made to that fundamental chemical activity and the potential to harness it for gene editing. You know, I still remember Martin Yinek, uh, who was a postdoc in my lab who was doing the, a lot of the original research on the Cas9 protein, had showed me some of his data originally um, showing how it could be used as a programmable enzyme. And we were, you know, already thinking about how this could be an incredibly powerful technology for altering DNA sequences in in cells. And I, I was home that night, and I was, you know, cooking dinner for my son, and I just I just kind of burst out laughing in my kitchen. And my, my son said, why are you laughing, Mom? And I said, because bacteria have this incredible protein. <laughs> and just understanding, you know, it's kind of one of those Richard Feynman moments, you know, the joy of finding things out, just kind of thinking about all of the implications of this system. And then I think from there, There were a a few months in which there were just increasing publications uh, that were appearing in the scientific literature as well as um, various colleagues from you know around the world who were emailing me saying you know this is such an exciting uh, system it's allowing all kinds of interesting experiments to be done and I could just see this this huge uh, wave coming of you know the all of the opportunities with this and uh and and with it and I sort of described this this a bit in the book you know this sort of thinking that you know initially you feel feeling just incredibly excited and and, and happy about about the opportunities with this. And then kind of the dawning realization that there were also some going, you know, really going to be some very profound societal and ethical implications of the technology as well.
3: You you tell this story in the book of having a dream where you follow a colleague into a room to meet someone who's interested in your research. And it's Adolf Hitler, who has a pig face, (laughs) Um, and he's sitting yeah. there waiting to take notes, saying, "I, I want to understand this amazing technology you've developed." I mean, that—that's a pretty horrifying dream. What—what what was happening when you had that dream?
2: Yeah, that—that that, I still remember waking up from that dream in a bit of a cold sweat. Actually, um, Pick that face was Adolf Hitler. That I think hap- would
3: cold sweat any of us. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, indeed. That dream came to me at a time when there was increasing adoption of the, the CRISPR technology in, in, in many different labs for, for a, a wide variety of, of uses, including a lab that had published some work in which they made precise changes to embryos from monkeys using the CRISPR technology and allowed these um, edited monkey embryos to develop into, into animals that were uh, in every way normal, except they had a precise change to one gene um, in, in, their, in, in the cells. And and the importance of that experiment really was that it, it demonstrated, I think, very directly that the CRISPR technology could be used to make changes that would become heritable in in primates. And I had no reason to think that wouldn't be possible also in, in human beings. And and it sort of raised the whole specter. It went in both directions, right? I mean, on the one hand, you could say, well, this is a powerful technology that could erase disease-causing mutations from the human germline. I mean, that seemed amazing to think about an opportunity like that. But the flip side is that it could allow something like a eugenics program if you really took it out you know in in sort of that direction that dream was one of the the things that really kind of brought to my mind you know brought to the fore for me the importance of not only continuing to do uh, responsible research myself and 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 encourage others to do that but also to start discussing the implications of this technology publicly
3: i'd actually like to talk about that heritability and germ germline question so could we start what is the germline
2: Yeah, great question. So the germline means the DNA that ultimately leads to the development of an entire organism and is heritable by the next generation. So if a change to DNA is made in the germline, so we're referring here to sperm or eggs or or embryos, then those genetic changes become part of the, the organism and they can be passed on to future generations. So that's very different than if we talk about uh, using a therapy, uh, for example, gene editing in what are called somatic cells, meaning cells that are fully differentiated. They're fully developed into a particular tissue type, let's say, and they cannot lead to to heritable changes in future generations.
3: So this is one of the, the sentences in your book that actually brought me up short, where you wrote this technology will someday somewhere be used to change the genome of our own species in ways that are heritable, forever altering the genetic composition of humankind. So one question I had about that, when you think about how that might happen, it's hard for, for a layperson to maybe understand it because you think, okay, well, you you added somebody's embryo, maybe they have children, but but the human race is a big thing. So how would changes that came to, to be through CRISPR lead to a branching off uh, of, of the human genome? How do, how do you see that changing the human race uh, in a consequential manner?
2: Well, you know, you mentioned earlier the example of Huntington's disease. And so maybe we can we can sort mm-hmm. of use that to think about this. So Huntington's disease is a terrible neurological degenerative uh, disorder that uh, affects people that have a mutation in a particular gene, the Huntington gene. This is a disease that is found, tends to be found in uh, families. There are families that are afflicted with this, where you see, you know, over several, maybe many generations, people that are affected by, by this disorder. Imagine that it were possible to remove that genetic uh, mutation from the germline of a family like that, starting with, you know, a person or or, or embryos, such that effectively you remove that mutation from their future descendants. I think that that's the kind of, of opportunity that gene editing now offers at the level of, you know, embryo editing. Will this happen? I don't know. Certainly not anytime soon, I would say, can, uh, can for I ask many you, reasons. Can but, I ask
3: you why not yeah. anytime soon? I think it can be hard sometimes listening to all this to understand, well, what stands between what we can conceptually do now with, with what we hope to do or want to do? Why, why can't we tomorrow, given the studies that have been done, begin curing muscular dystrophy or hunting as a disease in in, in human beings?
2: Well, I would put those uh, diseases into, you know, I I think we have to consider them in two buckets. One would be treating individual patients that have those diseases. So not doing germline editing, but rather delivering gene editing molecules into a patient that's already affected by a disease versus making a change to the germline that affects not only that person, but their future you know, their future kids. Let's just talk about for a moment the opportunities to cure disease in individuals initially, right? without making changes to the germline there. I think what holds us back right now is um is uh, is largely um, you know, the same set of things that uh, limit any. Therapeutic development. We have to figure out how to deliver the gene editing molecules into the person, into the cells that need editing. We need to figure out how to ensure that the, that treatment is safe and effective. Uh, so clinical trials would need to be conducted. And then, of course, the downstream uh, more societal questions that need to be addressed, including how do we pay for that kind of therapy? It's likely to be expensive. Who pays for it? Who gets access to it? I think all of those questions relate to to treating individuals. But if you think about, you know, what if we wanted to actually remove a disease-causing mutation from Uh, you know, from the, you know, the human genome, then it's a, it's kind of a much bigger deal. And it's sort of, that's the kind of research that has to be uh, vetted by uh, various kinds of review boards. Here in the United States, embryo research is not permitted uh, using federal funds, for example. So any of that type of, even research has to be conducted with non-federal funds And also right now, the Food and Drug Administration that is the federal uh, administration that regulates, uh, you know, development and and sort of vetting of new therapies is not allowed legally to even consider any uh, human embryo therapies. And that's here in the U.S. It's, of course, different in different countries. But you know I think there will be a number of things like that that don't ha- really have anything directly to do with the technology. So even if we knew that the technology worked perfectly, uh, we still have to overcome or deal with all of these other barriers to, to moving forward.
3: I think if you're listening to this, uh, frankly, even if you're just me um, and I'm interested in it, You have in your head now all those stories you've read over the years of there's an algae that can, you know, turn trash into a beautiful carbon-free form of energy. Or you you write in the book that there have been previous genetic engineering technologies like gene therapy and RNA interference. There were hype disease pivotal advances that would completely transform medicine and then clinical trial after clinical trial through cold water on that. So what is between being able to say, we think we can do this? And we can do this. What, what what are the practical hurdles that have to be overcome for CRISPR to at least be able to, to fulfill its promise, assuming you could make the financing and the, the regulations work?
2: I think there are two major big ones scientifically and, and then some other things. So to me, the two big ones right now are delivery so how to how to actually introduce these editing molecules into into a person and uh, and then how to control the outcome of the editing because that's still something that is not entirely under scientist' control and the third you know if we added a third, it would be the the accuracy of the editing, although I think that that's quickly becoming you know, something that can be dealt with in various ways that the technology is moving forward so quickly that we now have uh, highly accurate ways of both deploying the editors themselves and then then, uh, refining the editors so that they make only the desired targeted cut to DNA that triggers a precise change. So there definitely are things that remain to be developed on the technology uh, front, but it's also important to point out that if we just look at the technology it's already good enough to do certain things like correcting the mutation that causes sickle cell disease for example in the laboratory right so then the you know the then the challenge becomes downstream of that how do we actually deploy that in a patient effectively
3: so t- tell me a little bit specifically about the the delivery question because you you mentioned that first and then again with sickle cell uh, anemia what is the the difficulty in deployment
2: well the difficulty really comes down to Ensuring that cells receive the the gene editing molecules efficiently, and that uh, that only the cells that that need to be edited receive the gene editor. Ideally, one would like to have be great if we sort of imagine a time in the future when somebody can take a pill and and it contains a chemically addressable or addressed uh, gene editors that can that will only go into cells uh, where the DNA needs to be edited, not exposing the rest of the tissues to that kind of molecule. We're not there yet, obviously, right? And that that's something that, that many labs are very actively working on developing. I think one of the things that's appealing about treating a disease like sickle cell anemia or sickle cell disease with uh, gene editing tools is that the editing can actually be done outside the body. So blood cells or blood stem cells that are uh, from a patient can be edited outside the body, the editing can be validated experimentally, and then uh, then and only then the cells can be uh, replaced and and used uh, as a therapy. So I think for many uh, reasons, uh, you know, having to do with the downstream application of gene editing, I think blood disorders are going to be some of the first targets of this kind of therapy.
3: Is your estimation of the research being done on that kind of delivery, because it sounds fantastical when you when you put it that way, right, that we're going to deliver this exactly to the place it needs to go and not to the other places in, in, in something like the genome, is your view that, that we are currently working on technologies that know how to solve that problem, or is that a problem that we are trying to figure out how to solve and still need to come up with a conceptual breakthrough that will get us there? <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think it's more the the latter, you know, that it's still at the level of uh, trying to figure out conceptually how do we solve that problem. And uh, many many very very smart uh, people are are thinking about this and working on it. And I think one of the things that gene editing benefits from is that this is not a new problem, right? This is a problem that affects uh, many kinds of therapies. Uh, antibodies that are used in in patients, for example, is 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 one kind of treatment that also needs specific delivery methods. And so gene editing is coming along at a time when the delivery challenge has been uh, you know, sort of on the, on the table for a while. And it's, if anything, it's just motivating uh, people to deal with the challenge of, of delivery even more directly, just because we all appreciate that solving that problem will have a huge impact clinically and probably in other types of systems too. I would, I would argue also in agricultural applications by figuring out how we can do targeted delivery of gene editors into specific cell types.
3: So speaking of that, one, one way to alleviate human suffering might be to trigger widespread changes in an animal or, or an insect population. And to get into that, I want to ask a, another basic question. What is a gene drive?
2: <laughs> yeah, so gene drive is a term that uh, has now been bandied about a bit in the media because it's uh, it's uh, it's it's another one of the uses of gene editing that has attracted a lot of attention both because of its potential to solve big problems but also the the possibility of of causing uh, environmental uh, difficulties. So a gene drive really means using a gene editing tool that is efficient to introduce a genetic trait into a, a whole population of, of organisms and to do so very, very quickly. So to spread a trait through many, many individuals that allows uh, effectively that, that population to acquire a new genetic trait. For example, uh, a trait that causes sterilization or a trait that, that limits the ability of that species to be infected by, uh, by uh, some kind of a virus or a pathogen.
3: And so there is a discussion about wiping out or otherwise modifying mosquitoes using CRISPR. Can you can you give me the overview of that conversation?
2: The idea there is to use genetic modification through through gene editing to alter mosquitoes that in in such a way that as you said that that they they could either be uh, wiped out uh, over time through sterilization or they could be altered genetically so that they are no longer hosts of infectious agents that can be spread to humans. I mean, this, you know, in principle could have an enormous impact on human health if one could could remove uh, an insect vector for disease because, you know, mosquitoes are responsible for spreading many kinds of viruses, dengue virus, uh, malaria, you know, uh, and, and many others. And so I think that that uh, this has clearly attracted a lot of attention for the potential to solve a, a, br- a big uh, world uh, human health problem.
3: So this is one of these uses that seems conceptually we might be able to do it. And ethically, I don't know. I mean, it, it, the, the argument for it, <laughs> particularly given how many species we seem to wipe out without even realizing it all the time, It doesn't seem like a a bad argument. You talk to to biologists. They don't seem to think mosquitoes are a pillar on which ecosystems rest. And on the other hand, to put that kind of power in human hands where you can release a biological agent into into some kind of animal population and wipe that population out, uh, it's hard not to have your skin crawl a little bit around it.
2: Right now, I, I i have the same uh, <laughs> I have the same reaction, actually, to it. Um, you know, you you think about it both ways. I, I think that the reality is that it probably will be very difficult for a gene drive to be as efficient in the environment as it can be in principle in the laboratory. And the reason is that you know there's a <laughs> there's a very strong selection for organism fitness. And if you introduce a trait that even, you know, gives individuals even a, a small selective disadvantage in the environment, then I think that, you know, there's very strong selective pressure for individuals to arise that, you know, overcome that or, or, or sort of avoid it in some way. So, and there's already evidence that this is likely to be the case with gene drive as well in, in, in a more kind of, you know, open um, real-world setting rather than in a laboratory. But that being said, I still think that, you know, this is a, as you said, it's a very powerful tool that has to be deployed only with great uh, care and caution.
3: So you talk a little bit in the book about the possibility of genetic inequality, that you'll begin having germlines or even just families that are, that are not even manipulating the germline, but where the children are going to be taller stronger, more disease-resistant, possibly smarter. I mean, you can imagine 10, 15, 45 years down the line what we have learned how to do and that we'll enter a period of human history where the inequalities in our, our world are not just environmental and they're not just um, uh, financial. They are like literally down into the genome. And I was trying to weigh this uh, myself and, and, and thinking about the ways in which they're, that's already a little bit true, right? I mean, you have children who are stunted. You have children who are um, malnourished. So, I mean, you do have kids growing up with uh, very big intrinsic advantages over each other. But to transfer that to actual gene editing, I don't know how you would stop that um, over time, but it also seems like a pretty scary step to take. It seems like one of these things where it is completely individually rational for every family to do. I mean, what family does not want to do everything to give their children the best chance in life? And collectively, the level of resentment, anger, societal instability seems tremendous. I mean, you're talking about something here that I can't imagine how it would feel to be one of the families that couldn't afford that
2: yeah now these are these are really profound questions, and they really get to the the challenge of of access about who gets access to new technologies, who decides, who can use them, and how do you even control that? And certainly, globally, it's very hard, if not impossible, to to do that. I mean, I, I'd like to just take a a quick step back though and and just point out that just so that there's no uh, misconception here that you know what you're describing is clearly still, that opportunity isn't here today. Even if we wanted to do make those kinds of changes to human beings today, we can't. Why not? Because for the most part, we don't know the gen- genetic uh, makeup that you know the sort of the genetic um, uh, components that give rise to all of the traits that you just mentioned. And in many cases, there are going to be many many genes that contribute to certain traits. So using uh, using gene editing to to alter something like uh, you know intelligence for example, I think that's you know far in the future at this point it doesn't it's it's not something that can be done right now that but that being said, I think it, it's you know you raise a very interesting and profound question which you know pertains not just to gene editing but any new technologies that come along is that you know as you said, you know I think there is incredible human desire to help our kids we want you know we want to do anything we can to give our kids the best health that they can have and and the best uh, advantages in life and if that ultimately includes a you know a, <laughs> a menu of of uh, genetic traits that could be introduced during in vitro fertilization, for example. You could imagine a scenario in the future where you have couples using in vitro fertilization and having the opportunity to not only decide perhaps on the sex of their child and screening out certain genetic, uh, uh, you know, maybe the disease-causing mutations, but also to actually engineer in uh, traits that are desirable and i do think about that because i think that that is you know again going back to your very first question to me about you know what do i think about ha- what might be happening in the next few decades i think that is the kind of scenario that i could imagine coming in that time frame and that is uh, really does raise very very big uh, questions about about uh, you know who decides and who pays for such a thing And I don't have answers right now, right? But I think these are critical uh, questions to be grappling with now, even before it's a reality, so that people can uh, start to get a handle on how they want to think about that.
1: Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
4: Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down.
3: One of the the pieces of this that I think is is interesting is that I find my own intuitions here very untrustworthy. Uh, I find that faced with a new technology, I get risk averse, uh, maybe properly so, but also in a way that doesn't accord to the way human beings live their lives now. I mean, as you say, there's no way in which the environment around us is not a tremendous set of changes. That in no way has natural selection prepared us for. I mean, just down to the the way I use my own phone. And I could see this feeling another way to, to future descendants, right? To to people looking back and saying, why did you wait so long? I mean, you, you speak about having had a symposium or a meeting of some kind where somebody leaned forward when, when you were all talking about ways in which editing the germline might be unethical and said you know, we may someday consider it unethical not to use a germline editing to alleviate human suffering. And, and and that seems true to me. And if that's true, then is it also not true that we might one day see it as unethical to have not used it to improve human beings, to to try to make them in some way or another more capable, happier, something? I mean, I don't really even know where where you get into the line between what is alleviating human suffering and what is adding some kind of attribute or benefit. I mean, that itself seems very blurry to me. When you're in these conversations, do you feel that we have uh, an ethical framework that can be applied to this? Or, or do you worry that we are suspicious of technological change in a way that is ultimately going to lead us to adopt these technologies too slowly?
2: Well, it's fascinating because I what I have found is that people approach that sort of question very differently. And it's probably affected by all sorts of things, cultural and personal, et cetera, that lead them to the opinions that they arrive at. You know, I've had discussions with people in which they feel a range of, you know, they have a range of opinions on on how this should ultimately be used to, you know, let's say enhance human life and relieve human suffering that range from this should never ever be done and in fact we should try to throw away the CRISPR technology all the way to uh, we should be editing human embryos yesterday, and we should be doing as much as we can as fast as we can, and then everything in between. And I think what you said is absolutely right. I would put myself in the same in the same category as you. I, I often feel uh, nervous about new technologies. I mean, one, you know, in my neck of the woods here in California, there's lots of discussion about artificial intelligence and where is that taking us in the future and is it a good idea or not and we all kind of know it's coming whether (laughs) whether we want it to or we don't you know and i think gene editing is in the same kind of category where it's moving so quickly i mean it's that's one thing important for everyone to appreciate is that you know the the science is moving forward incredibly rapidly globally you know people working on various ways of using this including in in embryos and um and, and I think that, uh, as you kind of implied, there's a continuum, in my mind, between what we would maybe all consider, or most of us would consider, uh, changes to the human genome that are therapeutically beneficial or necessary versus those that are, are enhancement. So I'll give you one example. You can think about a gene that is uh, has been well-documented to be involved in cardiovascular disease, and there are natural there are people that, that sort of naturally have an alteration in that gene that makes them effectively immune to heart attacks, and they just, you know, they're not susceptible to cardiovascular disease, and they otherwise seem to be completely normal. And so we could ask in the future, would it be a good idea to just, in general, make an alteration to that gene in everybody? Maybe we get rid of cardiovascular disease completely from the human population in the long term. Would that be enhancement? Or would that be a therapy? I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of a fine line. <laughs> and there are lots of things like that, right?
3: As somebody's maternal grandfather died from a heart attack at age fifty, I think that would be therapy.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, where where yeah. you stand
3: on that? But that's one way in which I also think you you were talking about the sort of international dimension of this. Um, that's one way I think that the geopolitical side of this is pretty interesting, actually. I mean, Where you sit on the um, international spectrum, like whether you're in America, which is a very rich country, or you're in a country that is trying to catch up, that has had a lot, uh, a longer history of malnourishment or colonialism or less environmental advantage, could make this look very differently. I mean, I think of what would have happened if this technology had matured when the United States and its allies had been in real competition with the Soviet Union. I mean, the Soviet Union during that period and the U.S. In, in its own versions of propaganda, they were really quite intent on having a, a stronger race, right? I mean, the kinds of things you saw with doping at the Olympics. Um, but just also, I mean, we have all these you know, fitness challenges and different things that so were all about trying to, to trying to build a population capable of winning this great ideological war for the world's future. If that era had happened amidst CRISPR— when there was a way to possibly deploy technology to try to increase your, you know, your side's capability of winning of winning that civilizational war. You know, you can imagine that have being deployed in a very different way. And even now, I mean, with individual countries, you know, you can imagine individual nations looking at this in all kinds of different ways. You can imagine a Nordic country having a transhumanistic uh political party emerge that you know really tries to spread this throughout the population. I mean, that, that's one of the pieces of this that I think is really fascinating and in some ways really unnerving. These research results are available for people to read. And it may be that it is stringently regulated in America, but maybe not in China. Or maybe it's regulated in America and China, but maybe not Indonesia. And that, that kind of international change in, 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 in genetic inequality, too, it would have very, very strange and destabilizing impacts.
2: Yeah, no no doubt. I mean, I think one of the things that, that comes up in discussions about regulation around gene editing is, is uh, you know, the fact that there's medical tourism, right? And that there's opportunities for people, whether they are scientists or whether they are um, customers uh, of this technology in some way, to go to the part of the world where they can get access to it if they really want to. Uh, at least some people, and how that affects the way that we think about uh, regulation. So I'll just, again, I can give you an example. So at one point, I was testifying in front of the House Subcommittee on Science and Technology. You know, it was a very interesting discussion, actually. I thought that a lot of the questions that came from the representatives on the committee were were very interesting and very informed. You know, a a lot of the questions were raising concerns about the uses of the technology and how the US may be needed to move to to regulate it in various ways and then at one point uh, one of the congress members said if we try to restrict the use of crispr in the in certain areas is that just going to push our our competition elsewhere? And will it encourage scientists to move outside of the US to do uh, work that will ultimately be competitive with the US? And I think that's a, that's a very real possibility. So something that has to be considered alongside these uh, issues of, you know, different cultural norms, et cetera, is just this, you know, I think the fact that science is now global and people will go where they, where they can do the kind of science that they want to do at some level.
3: The other piece of of that is the idea of it being used as an international weapon. So you write about how the government's worldwide threat assessment, which is this this report presented by the US. intelligence agencies, described genome editing as one of the six weapons of mass destruction and proliferation that other nations might try to develop um, at, at great risk to America. Paint that picture for me when when um, when our intelligence agencies are worried about this being weaponized against us, what 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 form would that take?
2: I think that uh like you know honestly I would put I would put gene editing in in the same category as as uh, other technologies that allow manipulation of organisms um you know for example viruses right i mean viruses uh, obviously are very dangerous and have been weaponized in various ways um and um can be you know in principle deployed as as weapons of mass destruction and in that same vein gene editing in principle could be used to either you know create uh, organisms that are uh, uniquely capable of infecting uh, certain populations or um you know altering uh, the food supply in certain ways um there i'm sure there are, are other other th- other nefarious you know things we could imagine But I I just, honestly, I don't don't really think that gene editing is unique in that regard. I think that, you know, there are a number of technologies that we would categorize as uh, potentially highly dangerous in the wrong hands or with the wrong kinds of applications. And we have to, uh, as with any of those, you know, with gene editing, we just need to be cognizant of the kinds of of things that could happen and uh, to the extent possible, take measures to prevent that.
3: Do you think it would be better or worse for Washington to spend more time trying to think about these questions? And and the, the reason I ask this is that I often I cover politics and, and I often reflect on the ways in which a lot of the things that the political system makes a big deal out of do not feel to me like civilizationally pivotal issues. Uh, I'm pretty sure that things like CRISPR and driverless cars and some of the big technological advances we're seeing in this era, they're going to be more important to historians than whether the top marginal tax rate goes back down to 35%. And so sometimes I think, well, this is crazy. We, we are wasting our time in this town. We're watching tweets in the morning and and you know possibly <laughs> fruitless tax reform debates in the evening. And we're ignoring these... Uh, unbelievable changes in, in what we're able to do. And then, you know, there's another part of me that thinks, given what Washington is like, maybe that's better. Maybe it's better that this is not getting too much attention. Maybe it's better that people aren't getting in your way. Um, wh- where do you come down on that debate?
2: Yeah, I I, uh, I share your, your uh, you know, the two sides to that, to that issue, I guess. Um, on the one hand, I think it's actually very important that there's some scientific... Uh, knowledge in in Washington, you know, a, a good basis for making decisions. I think making making decisions in the in the absence or ignorance of science is a bad idea generally. So I, I certainly favor uh, you know our politicians uh, becoming knowledgeable, at least at some level, even a very you know just a very basic level about uh, technological breakthroughs that come along, including including CRISPR. But at the same time, I, I think that you know it's uh, it's Very important that the science proceed to the extent possible quickly uh, to solve real problems. And so putting, uh, trying to put a lot of uh, regulations in place, and I think honestly, with gene editing, it'll be very hard to do that anyway. And I think, for the most part, the committees from the National Academies that have reviewed this have concluded that we have a good regulatory framework right now that deals with most of the issues that come up with with gene editing. So I think that's that's very good. So I really, on the one hand, I favor uh, favor uh, sci- you know, politicians understanding the science, but I I also think that. Uh, for the most part we need to rely on on uh, regulatory frameworks that are in place and that have largely been put in place by by scientific groups to control the way that this technology is deployed going forward except for some of the most extreme uh, kinds of things like uh, like you know national security kinds of issues
3: you talk in the book about your own journey from from being somebody really focused on the science to to somebody who realizes okay, this has broader societal implications, I need to begin talking to bioethicists and lawyers and, and trying to understand this on, on a broader level. When you look at history of, of big technological changes, uh, what, what are the forces that you think give them legitimacy? What do you think is necessary for a technology that can really change our lives to be viewed as beneficial or at least controlled? versus what do you think are are the contexts in which it, it gets out of control? Are there examples you look back to that, that you feel were done well or poorly?
2: I think public acceptance is really, really fundamental to new technologies, and the self-driving car example is a good one, right? Will ultimately will will a large number of people embrace the idea of self-driving cars or, or not? I think it's still a still an open question, and a lot of it depends on how that technology is rolled out and is it seen as safe and ethical and not displacing uh, people from jobs unnecessarily, you know, things like that. Gene editing, you know, same thing. I think, you know, early uses of this are really, really critical to setting that stage. If, you know, let's just imagine a scenario where a CRISPR baby is born somewhere, and if that if that were to lead to uh, a public backlash uh, against the technology generally, that could be very bad for the science, right? It could really lead to people trying to Put a lot of regulations onto it, uh, or or other kinds of restrictions that, in my opinion, wouldn't really stop the science, but might r- make it very hard for scientists that are trying to use it, even for way in ways that are um, likely to be very beneficial uh, beneficial in the future. So. Uh, to me, I think we have to look to um, kind of examples, as you said, both positive and negative for how things have been deployed uh, in the past. And and wh- I think one negative example is the, the whole debate about genetically modified organisms or GMOs. I think that was handled very very poorly in many ways and I think has led to a lot of misunderstanding about what GMO really means and um, has led to what I think are very important uh, developments, especially in agriculture, that could have a positive impact on human health and nutrition being delayed for years and years and years, uh, you know, for reasons that frankly don't have anything to do with the real science, they have to do with misperceptions around what that label really means. On the positive side, I think that if you look at how uh, scientists reacted to the early developments in what I call molecular cloning back in the 1970s, this refers to a time when it's kind of the, in, in many ways, the beginning of the modern molecular biology revolution, when companies like Genentech were just getting started. And uh, it was kind of the birth of biotech in many ways. And And that was really driven by the ability to, which was new at that time in the 70s, to be able to to make copies of particular pieces of DNA and replicate those, those pieces of DNA in bacteria, even in the kinds of bacteria that inhabit the human gut. And there was concern at the time about how that might in principle, impact human health? Would it be dangerous uh, to do this kind of work? And scientists got together and debated this, and it really led to a a lot of development of the regulatory frameworks that are in place uh, today. That was a very positive uh, kind of way that the scientific community reacted to a clearly very powerful new set of technologies that we're going to clearly revolutionize not only academic and clinical uh, research and medicine, but also uh, commercial opportunities in science. And I, I hope that we use that same you know, kind of approach here with gene editing.
3: How much do you think this is really in the scientific community's control, though? I mean, when you use the example of GMOs, that's an example where I feel like the scientific community really, really tried in every way it knows how to say look, as far as we can tell, and this has been studied pretty well, these are safe. But people are, on some level, I think people are kind of squicked out by them, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Yeah. And, and and so they're just not willing to buy it in that way. And and I think climate change is even a bigger example where there is nothing more, I think, at this point, the scientific community could do to like scream at the top of their lungs that there is a scientific consensus that man-made global warming is real and a threat that we need to be be addressing. And it has just become a more and more polarizing issue over the years. I mean, so I read some of these pieces about scientific communication and scientists putting it on themselves. But, you know, going back to the conversation we had earlier about our intuitions, you know, I think that there's a lot of these things, that, and, and particularly when they end up conflicting with people's self-interest or with their, their sort of tribal allegiances, that it's not really a conversation about scientific evidence, that it's actually a conversation about more fundamental values and, and things people are just comfortable with versus not comfortable with. And, and, and this kind of technology, I think to the extent it is curing terrible diseases will be something people are, are pretty comfortable with, but to the extent it's going into the food supply and, and creating other things and, and giving people control over something that hu- human beings have never felt like they had control over, even if they have manipulated um, genomes through selective breeding and whatever else, that feels to me like there's going to be societal friction.
2: Yeah, I think I think you're you're absolutely right. I look to examples like in vitro fertilization, though I guess where you know I'm 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 uh, old enough to to remember uh, the before and after of that, right? And and sort of when the first uh, test tube baby was born, and all they sort of the outcry over that, and people concerned about the all, everything, you know, the ethics of it, the public health issues that it raised, um, access, all of those questions, and now you know a few decades later, it's largely accepted. Right. It's not that everybody would decide to use it, but it's, you know, it's sort of become much more accepted and acceptable socially uh, than one might have guessed in those very early days. So I think it really does come. and, And why is that? Well, I think it's because for many, many people, it has been a positive thing. Right. It has helped people to have kids that couldn't have kids. And it has helped people avoid genetic disease that would otherwise be affected by it. And I think that, you know, we'll see the same kinds of of reactions probably to gene editing applications. It'll probably largely come down to do people feel that this is a positive thing that affects their lives positively or not? And, And if the answer is yes, then I think that it largely will, at least over time, become uh, accepted and acceptable. And, and as you're also implying, I think that may not happen for every application, right? There may be some uses of it where it's very hard to overcome people's uh, biases uh, for various reasons.
3: Yeah, that, that that all makes sense to me. Well, I appreciate this and I appreciate how generous you've been with your time. Let me ask you the question we always use to to end these conversations, which is what are three books on the topic of CRISPR and gene editing or on anything else that you've read that have influenced you in your career that you would would recommend the audience read?
2: Uh, Personally, I was very influenced by The Double Helix, by Jim Watson, back when I was—it's not a new book, of course—but it's uh, it's one that I think describes the the search to discover the structure of DNA, and I think in many ways set off the modern era of of biology. So I think that's an interesting one. And if they, you know, there's there's obviously many uh, books related to the same topic that I think are also very interesting that talk about the contributions of other scientists, including uh, Rosalind Franklin, to that to that discovery. I think that, uh, you know, the book Sapiens is very interesting. It kind of looking to where human beings uh, are going in the future um, is sort of a fascinating, thought-provoking book that makes you think about, you know, where we are today as a species and and, and where things might be going in the future. And then also I think that... um, the book, The Making of the Atomic Bomb, is one that's uh, also I read fairly recently and is powerful because it really talks about the, um, the profound thought process of scientists who are involved in developing technology that clearly is, uh, is is going to change the world and the way things are done in the future, which I think it certainly applies to, to gene editing and CRISPR.
3: Jennifer Doudna, thank you very much.
2: Great to be here, Ezra. Thanks for the interview.
3: Okay. That's a lot to think about. Uh, Thank you, of course, to Jennifer Doudna, uh, to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, to Peter Leonard. Uh, The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. Real quick, uh, Jennifer mentioned Sapiens. Uh, If you'd like to hear an interview with the author of Sapiens, you all know Harari. Scroll back in this podcast archives. That was one of my favorite conversations. And I I think if if you are feeling like having your mind bent a little bit more, you will enjoy that one. Either way, we will see you next week.